0: Today, we check in with Brian Doll and talk August fishing in the hot weather. Plus, we ask the aquatic biologist about pollution runoff. It's all coming up.
1: i got my fishing pool keys, tackle box in my hand. Gonna cast a few lines with my toes in the sand. Pulling in a big catch makes me feel like a man. But the wife, she just don't understand. I love wildlife bass, and if you don't like fishing, you can kiss my four-stroke right in the back. Cause the fishes all tremble at the thought of me when I'm fishing, Paul Bunyan Country. This is Fishin' Paul Bunyan Country.
0: Bro Bros Doll joining me once again. We've uh, been taking a look uh, throughout the course of the year at the different types of walleye fishing as the weather warms up. Now we're to that time of year, bro, where it is hot. The weather is hot. The weather is still. The sky is high. The water is warm. One thing we have to remember, the walleyes have not gone extinct. They are still there.
2: Oh, absolutely, and they have (laughs) to feed more now than they ever have. Uh, Walleye fishing could be phenomenal in the summertime. And uh, we're talking true numbers for those people who like to get a lot of action. Uh, and our lakes are full of slot-sized walleyes. And uh, this is a time of year, bottom bouncing is king and works really well. Um, you know, there's spinner blades, like baitfish image spinner blades, Mr. Walleye crawler haulers, night crawlers are uh, probably the lion's share of the bait that we use because minnows die in the warm water. As soon as you drop a red tail from cool water into that warm water and bring it up, it's not doing anything. But throw bait on a spinner and go 1.2 miles an hour and sometimes kicking it up a little bit, you'll get strikes, and it's phenomenal. Rock runner, bottom bouncer, and a uh, Mr. Walleye crawler hauler or a bait fish image spinner uh, with a crawler on it is is excellent. And, uh, you know, try areas main lake structures, the walleyes have been everywhere. They start out near the shoreline, they work their way towards the breaks and points, and now they're on main lake structures and some areas lend themselves to be better to bottom bouncing and trolling than others. You know, go make your own reports. Sometimes you get reports and you don't hear much. The lake's waiting for you to show up and go, and uh, there's always going to be fish to be caught. But structures facing the mud where the, where the hatches go on are the best.
0: One of the things that I've heard more and more about the last five years, and I don't know if people just uh, just figured it out, or maybe they just have a better tackle that can get through it in this day and age, but uh, instead of going deep, a lot of people head toward the weeds.
2: Oh, weeds are are absolutely the best, and and for the most part, a lot of lakes that have deep water and had deep water bites in the summertime are turning into shallow water bites, and for there's a lot of mitigating factors for this. It's, uh, you know... They're, A lot of the forage is shallow, and uh, if the bait's shallow, the fish will stay shallow. They don't need to go deep. And if a thermocline develops, the fish can't go below it. But there are years when there is no thermocline, and the fish can go all the way to China if they want as far as depth. And uh, I don't like to chase them over 35 feet because of the mortality rate is high. Even if they swim away, they're dead. So I always tell people, even if you mark them, don't pull them. If it's a career day and you need it to win a tournament, that might be something. But just for a quick smile and a fish on, on Facebook, I don't know if it's worth it worth killing the fish. So I would say stay shallower. And for the most part, the weed beds are holding all the fish. And we've seen it happen on Bemidji. We've seen it happen on leech and, and cast. Our fish are becoming shallower and shallower, even finding them in the middle. Or on the inside edge of the weed bed, and, uh, which, is, which is great, then the survival rate's much higher.
0: And not only will you find walleye in there, you'll find bass in there, northerns in there, panfish in there. Every, everything goes to the weeds.
2: Oh, everything goes to the weeds. That's a giver of life. It's cool under the weeds. It's full of food and uh, oxygen. And as the weeds start dying off, you want to start looking for greener weeds. And uh, a lot of our lakes become just a giant lush garden, and uh, some places are better than others, and the fish swim the whole area. So the real trick is for you to find the best weeds. And musky fishermen know it. Pike fishermen know it. When they're fishing for when they're pitching for big muskies, they're going to want the, the best weed beds with the best contours and shapes to the weed beds, and weeds that have rocks nearby or edges or breaks are awesome. And access to pelagic roaming fish like bees where they come in. And the deep waters near the weed bed, they could dart out, grab grab a tulipy, and go back. Well, these are the same areas you're going to catch your biggest walleyes of the summer. And in some lakes, it isn't so much that way. They'll they'll head out to the shallow rocks, and they'll be in rocks feeding on crayfish. And that's when Leech Lake and other lakes, the walleyes go on the crayfish feed bag. Orange blades, orange and green blades, uh, browns, anything... Gold and, and, you know, just a lot of the baitfish image blades and a crayfish pattern and a night crawler work really well. So for most lakes, it's in the weeds. But don't forget about shallow rocks. And on some of these uh, rocks, in between their sandbars with cara, there's a lot of different stuff to hit. And the panfish, I love the panfish. The panfish, of course, are going to be in the great, greenest weeds they can find, opposite of where the, where the big predator fish are. They're not going to be in the sharpest break. They get kicked to the curb, and they always have to go to the to, to the uh, the shorter breaks, or or sometimes the crappies will suspend over the thermocline.
0: More with Rob Rose, dog coming up.
2: someday I won't go fishing.
1: Of course, I'll be dead. This is Fish and Paul Bunyan Country. You're listening to Fish and Paul Bunyan Country.
0: Although it has certainly cooled down, it is August, and it could get hot at any time. We had a chance to talk hot weather fishing with Rob Rosedal. Hot weather. you know, Are there any particular lakes you say, I'm definitely hitting this lake, and lakes that you try to avoid, not that we want to irritate any chambers of commerce or anything?
2: Oh, I, uh, I love fishing leech all the way up to the edge. And then if leech starts slowing down, Winnibagosh is heating up. And, you know, it's one of those things, again, you can get away from the boats, but can you find anything where there is no boats? That's the problem is, is when the fish school up on these lakes uh, in, in the heat of summer, uh, all the fish are there. <laughs> and you get away from the people. There ain't nothing there, but there's ways to uh, fish the edges or, or similar structures. Uh, but there's, there's some massive schools of fish in the summertime. I would say it is the time of year to have the biggest piles of fish on our big waters than any other time, and they're shallow. And uh, just, you do know, it, in the summertime, remember, that heat and that uh, that water, those fish play out fast, and they, they die really easy, even if they swim away. So be real careful with them. If you're going to pose with them, don't drop them. And if you tell someone not to drop them, you know they're going to drop them. But Make sure if they drop them, they drop them in the water. And uh, quick picture, you know, I, you see it all the time that somebody has a fish out for, you know, for way too long and they, they drop the fish, they're measuring it and so they have to go dig for the camera. Have your camera out. Have your board sitting there. You know, you got to have hope that you're actually going to catch a fish so prep like you are going to catch a fish. As soon as you get to a spot, have everything out and be ready. Frame in the shot before the fish is there before you take it out of the net. Just kind of figure out how you're going to shoot it and then pull it up, shoot it, drop it. You know, that way, or you know, don't drop it. I mean, set it in, but... uh there's a way to keep more fish alive, and we don't need to burn through a lot of fish. Um, you know, there's even in the summertime, they need to be touched less and in the water more. Uh, but that, by all means, go for them and have a good time. Just be cautious with them. As far as states go, we are the best state as far as I'm concerned with how we take care of our fish. Uh, we treat them with the utmost respect. It's amazing you go to other places, and we do have some of the best fishing anywhere in uh but in the middle of summer, you know, the, even with the professionals, you know, it's the boat ride. It's everything else. They might have solution. They might have an aerator and all that stuff. But you put it in a the well, it's, there's a good chance that that fish is going to die later. So it was a great decision to do that. But while we're going to fish for them, you got to be real careful. And, uh, and things happen, but uh, keep them in the net. I use a Fravo Conservation Series net because it's really wide at the bottom, and it doesn't fold the fish in half. When you bring them in, some of these nets are like an ice cream cone, and that fish is squeezed, and that's not good for them. Um, and then, you know, if you're catching lots of fish, you know, just make sure to keep them in, in the net as long as you can. And uh, if, if the hook is down farther, don't dig out a, you know, a two-cent hook and pull the guts out of a fish. Cut your line because there's a good chance that hook will dissolve and the fish will be able to, to make it with the acids in their mouth that uh, small hook will dissolve. You know, if you can, turn the hook without touching the gills, and uh, there's ways to do it, and I'll, I'll definitely post it online on how to take a hook out of a out of a walleye, um, but uh, turn the hook real slow, and if it's in a bad area where the fish could die, you could try to get it, but don't ever rip its guts out. I see it all the time, and, and uh, be cautious with the fish, and we'll have a great fishery.
0: All right. Good advice from Brian Bro, Bro's Doll Outstanding Guide in Paul Bunyan Country as we talk about the hot weather walleyes. Uh, bro, if uh, people want to go out fishing with you this time of year or any time of year, how can they get a hold of you and get something lined up?
2: Hey, just look me up online, brosguideservice.com or Facebook me.
0: Bro, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me, and good luck, everybody.
0: Up next, we ask the aquatic biologist a tough question.
1: Fish and Paul Bunyan Country. Ask the aquatic biologist. Once again, asking the aquatic biologist a difficult question, or maybe maybe this is a softball. I don't know. Um, Dr. Andrew Hayes from Babinchi State University joining us. And Andy, uh, pollution runoff. We, we hear that phrase a lot. Let's start with what, how you would define pollution runoff and then go into how it affects fish and lakes.
3: So when I think of that... So the way that question was phrased, I'm typically thinking of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus that is getting overland flow from either lawns or agriculture or industry or however, that type of uh, pollution, nutrient loading. Okay. This was the way I would think about that originally. And how does that
1: get into the lakes and and rivers?
3: I mean, any time that you add fertilizer to a system at a higher rate than what the plants or the soil can absorb it or the plants are using it uh, that has to go somewhere right mm-hmm. and it will either be it typically gets washed overland into a stream or into and then into a lake or directly into a lake shore uh, the other thing is what if you applied a fertilizer of some sort or some sort of animal waste product right after a rain event or during the winter, and then the snow melt occurs, uh, and it never has even a chance to get into the, the soil and then subsequently into the plants. That would be overland flow, uh, pollution that occurs, non-point source into a typically stream system or a lakeshore.
1: And so once it's in there, what what tends to happen?
3: So usually those are the two limiting resources for phytoplankton plants, things like that. So you're, diff- you're, you're like fertilizing the lake. The same thing that would happen to the lawn that you applied it to or the crops that it was designed to, to have grow, the plants and the algae in the lake system respond the same way because that's okay. typically a limiting factor, and that can cascade up the entire food chain. You know, so like just say in Bemidji, if you – Lake Bemidji, if we increase phosphorus loading just a little bit, right – That might create a little bit more algae, which gets consumed by more zooplankton, which gets consumed by more perch, more walleye then faster growth. So to a point that those systems can handle these. One of the big consequences that can occur is eventually if you change the water clarity by causing more and more algae to occur, and the water gets so dark that the light can't even penetrate to the bottom anymore, and you can't have rooted plants, you can have a pretty big shift in that ecosystem then uh, where you don't have as many rooted plants anymore, which in turn releases more phosphorus from the sediments and just causes this cascading yeah. you know, situation where you have this algal bloom. That's all you have.
1: So in this area, by and large, is it an
3: issue? Is Are, are people doing a good job? What's going on? I think it's always an issue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's some professors on the campus at BSU that are tracking phosphorus loading rates around the area too. Uh, I know some of the ag- most of the agencies uh, that are in charge of protecting our aquatic resources are monitoring these systems very closely. Now, uh, I guess I'm not comfortable saying how many of them are how many of our lakes are in good shape or bad shape. I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but uh, I know there are some that are in uh, concern for sure. Okay. Um.
1: So. Th- this is i mean like you know especially if you're living on i mean it's everybody everybody's everybody's lawn but i mean if you're especially if you're living on a lake shore and you're throwing in all kinds of fertilizer to make that grass look spectacular you could really wreak a lot of
3: havoc yeah i guess the other thing that there's a big push for right now too is to have um, natural shoreline for at least a portion of the area away from the lake and that can help buffer some of these changes too so it's hard for the normal general public to know exactly how much fertilizer you're supposed to put on your lawn and when to do it so mistakes can happen but if you have that buffer in the front you know where there's some natural vegetation there and it's not just lawn that can grab those nutrients and hold them there instead of letting them go into the lake which is a big uh, safeguard for the systems so there's a big push for that now
1: and you're seeing more and more of that on the other hand i mean it's it does look impressive when you got a nice lawn right to the sand and you got a nice beach and then yeah. your water. I mean, it does look nice and I get where people are coming from there. But yeah, if you're concerned at all for the long term health of the lake, do whatever you can to
3: Yep. Do your part for sure.
1: To do do your part to eliminate some of the other parts that you might be doing as
3: well. <laughs> for sure.
1: Okay. Um have can you give us any examples where this has been a huge Huge problem, not necessarily here, but in, historically that that people point to as examples of this is what happens
3: when you don't take care of this stuff. I think some of our southern lakes in Minnesota even. Right? Oh. So, it's, I mean, historically, agriculture, um, especially before we had things like nutrient management plans and, and buffer strips and things like that on the waterways – that can be pretty rough on aquatic ecosystems, right? I remember one of the professors coming from down south to give a talk in one of my classes and he said that in some of the lakes down there you can drop the Secchi disk, uh, take measurements of how far you can see into the water column and it's only centimeters. Imagine that. Wow. wow. So a bit extreme. And that's because as soon as you get below that surface there's an algal bloom on the top and it covers up everything immediately. So limits the light down in no rooted plants anymore, right? Dissolved oxygens can get low enough during nighttime and even into the, uh, the morning hours when photosynthesis isn't going on that all the fish can die. So you can have a summer kill wow. as well. So it can get, I mean, if you let it and it gets past that tipping point where it changes and the plants can no longer grow, it can get really bad.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Something to think about from Dr. Andrew Haifes, our resident, well, Lapeche State University's resident aquatic biologist, who we borrow for 20 weeks every year. Andy, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me.